The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law professor and trial attorney Stephen Wagner. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law and San Luis Obispo College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you. Good day, Stephen. How are you today? I am well. In fact, um, I'm well, uh, doubly well, because we have uh, Eliana Biscard Church in studio today. And let's do a dual greeting to Eliana. Welcome back, Eliana. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for joining us today, Eliana. And for our listeners' benefit, Eliana worked with us uh, very early on when we were getting our radio chops, right, Mitch? That's exactly right. She was there at the ugly beginning. Yes, (laughs) way back when. So today we take on the topic of the Brock Turner sentencing. Brock Turner is serving a six-month sentence in protective custody in Santa Clara County Jail following a sentence that was issued and ordered by Judge Aaron Persky after a jury trial. And he suffered convictions for various serious felonies, sexual assault felonies. And we're going to take on that topic today and talk about the sentencing and discuss as objectively as possible a lot of the issues that are quite polarizing in this case. Well, that's exactly right, Stephen. And and there's so many social issues involved. But what I think we're going to try to do today is is focus on the more narrow legal issues, particularly those around the sentencing, the question of was this a proper action by a judge, is there an appeal available on this, and particularly the recall action that's being raised by a Stanford law professor. Yeah, you know, and Mitch, now's probably a good time to share that I, for one, am glad that we did not take this topic on last week, and I was talking to Eliana earlier about that because it gave us time to sort of cool our heels a bit so that we can present issues in an objective fashion. Uh, Obviously, there's great outrage over the sentence, and Uh, I think what we should do is strive to do our objective best to talk about the issues. And I think in large part, we may find ourselves uh, serving as myth busters in a way. And I'll just get it started by saying this. The outrage that has followed this sentence is quite warranted in my opinion. However, the judge exercised his discretion pursuant to the law. And we will talk about the factors that the judge needs to be 
uh, needs to consider in arriving at a sentencing decision, and that will lead us to a discussion of factors in aggravation and factors in mitigation, and of course, at the same time, we need to talk about safety in college campuses also. I think you're exactly right, Stephen, and, and I think you and I probably, along with many people, don't disagree with one part of this issue, and, the, and that is the trial went on as, as is expected. Uh, this individual, Brock Turner, was convicted of three felony charges. There's no question or evidence that the trial was in any way improper or whether it was, didn't come to its, its proper conclusion of finding him guilty on those three charges. So he is a convicted felon on three sexual assault uh counts. So I don't think anybody disagrees with that, and that's not part of the dialogue. No, it's not. And the other thing that I would add, Mitch, just for the record, because I think it is important, and this relates to the specifics of the charges, the victim was in a vulnerable position in this case, and the charges actually actually reflect that. Um, he was charged with assault with intent to commit rape of an intoxicated, unconscious person, and that vulnerable victim issue is one of the big issues that we need to discuss in direct connection to the actual sentencing, and and then, of course, to college lifestyle. Wouldn't you agree, Eliana? Of course, absolutely. So I think you're exactly right, Stephen. What we have here is a conviction of, of an individual of sexual assault. No doubt about that. What then set off the firestorm, as you so properly set up, was that after that sentence, a judge... Here's actually why don't you walk us through the steps of what yeah, happened? Yeah, sure. So okay, so this case went to jury. In other words, the jury made findings and they returned guilty verdicts. So after the jury returned a verdict, there's then a gap in the proceedings, and the next significant court proceeding is the sentencing. What happens between the verdict, the return of the verdict, and the actual sentencing, however, is that the adult probation department files a report. That was done in this case and the probation officer as she was required to do took statements from the victim in this case and we're going to talk about whether those victim statements were accurately portrayed to the court because I think that's a major issue here and then the probation officer submits a report and in this case the probation department found it fit uh, uh, in other words, finding unusual circumstances so as to make this a probation-eligible case because uh, ostensibly this should have been a prison-type case by virtue of the charges. It is only uh, in the case where there's unusual circumstances that a prison sentence can be avoided. And the probation officer in this case was somehow... Uh, compelled to make a recommendation to the court that uh, Turner was eligible for probation. The judge then is honor bound to review the probation report and then make his findings. And of course, he adopted the findings of the probation report and found it fit to sentence Turner to six months in county jail, which by law is permissible even though you're charged with a felony in our current sentencing scheme. He will serve very likely half of that time in protective custody. So those are the realities. The other issue is what a judge must do in terms of the evaluation. And a judge is honor bound to look at factors in aggravation and factors in mitigation. 
honor bound to do explain, so. Explain those two things because those are things that come easy to us, but they do affect what the judge's decision ultimately was. Sure. So factors in aggravation are usually comprised of issues that relate to the method by which the crime was committed, so-called MO. Uh, was there a vulnerable victim in this case? Was the victim intoxicated? Yes. Was the defendant intoxicated? Yes. We'll talk about whether the judge parked that in mitigation or aggravation a little bit later. Uh, was there evidence of plotting or scheming or planning? That's another issue that might be deemed a factor in aggravation. In other words, was there evidence that Turner preyed upon the victim? Is there evidence to support that there was consent or lack of consent? Another issue that, of course, is front and center in this case, because as you know and our listeners likely know, Mr. Turner testified at trial, and his defense team courted the theory that he thought the victim consented. So the issue of intoxication is hanging out there, in my opinion, absolutely as a factor in aggravation. And I'll let you or maybe Eliana push me around on whether it should be a factor in mitigation because of college lifestyle. We can talk about that. Moving now to factors in mitigation, the age of the defendant, okay, tender age, young age, youthful defendant. Lack of criminal history is typically considered a factor in mitigation, uh, early admission of guilt, recognition of fault or wrongdoing is also a factor in mitigation. So the highlighted factors here that appear to have been uh, communicated by probation were youth and absence of criminal history and then intoxication, which in my opinion was improperly parked in mitigation. Okay, and let me ask you one other thing, because this question I've heard come up. Uh, isn't part of the decision of splitting even the six months of jail versus two years of probation, that the mix between incarcerated time and probation, does a judge also get to consider whether the public is better served by having this individual locked up, or can the punishment be in this sense, achieved by a strict probationary term, registering for lifetime as a sex offender, et cetera. Yes. I didn't yeah, hear you. Yeah, public safety, public safety also is a concern as it relates to the length or the term of probation. In this case, Turner was uh, ordered on three years of probation. So you're right. Public safety is an issue, and whether or not there so is... Not you and I are trying to give weight one way or the other that. I'm, we're just trying to flesh out all the aspects that went on in the courtroom and with the judge's decision, which he then had the discretion away, versus just some of the talking points that are highlighted in the Yes. Media. Yeah, that's true. And I think when we come back from the break, we can talk about these various factors in aggravation and mitigation. You let me go long on the intro there to sort of frame those issues, and perhaps I tipped my hand that I think the sentence was grossly inappropriate. Uh, but we can talk about it uh, and do our objective best to also weave in the issue of what needs to happen at college campuses. We're going out on a break. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law on the BizTalk Radio Network and over Voice America. And we're talking about the Brock Turner sentencing. When we come back, we will continue our discussion. Don't go away.
Deciding to go to law school brings up questions like, can I afford it? Will I be prepared to take the leap and open my own office when I graduate? I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true with professors who are practicing attorneys and judges. They mentor our graduates. But don't take it from me. Hear what recent graduate Creighton Mandeville says. I wasn't crippled in debt coming out of Monterey College of Law. I came out of it with no debt. I was able to do some working during that time and some savings, so I exited law school with no debt. I did feel prepared coming out of law school. I started helping friends with the issues that came up for them, and Monterey College of Law has so many great faculties and things that there were resources for me. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000. That's 582-4000. Or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. That's montereylaw.edu. For 45 years, the Boys and Girls Clubs of Monterey County have been a vital part of our community. The club's mission is to inspire and empower the youth of Monterey County to realize their full potential to become responsible, healthy, productive, and successful citizens. As just one of the club's programs, more than 12,000 children and families have enjoyed safe after-school care at the Boys and Girls Club's Salinas Clubhouse. Boys and Girls Club of Monterey County is very excited to announce that Monterey College of Law is providing one full tuition law school scholarship each year to a former Boys and Girls Club participant. For more information about this exciting opportunity, contact President and CEO Donna Ferrero at dferrero at bgmc.org or call 831-757-4412. Beginning with the Continental Congress in 1774, America's national legislative bodies have kept records of their proceedings. Did you know that these records are available to you online for free? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Congress.gov is the official website for the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It is published by the Library of Congress and includes the public records of the U.S. Congress, the Government Publishing Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Remember, members of Congress work for us, and if you want to see what they're doing, go to congress.gov and watch the actual sessions of Congress, or look up any law that's being proposed. That's congress.gov, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot gov. Are you ready to start law school now? If you've just graduated from college or just thinking of changing your career, now is the time to take that first step. Slow College of Law is accepting applications for May 2016. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School, founded 43 years ago. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. Their highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evenings, and the campus is conveniently located in downtown San Luis Obispo. Let the professionals show you how to make becoming a lawyer a reality. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an information session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admission Wendy LaRevere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org.
to Wagner and Winnick on the law. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the Brock Turner sentencing, the case out of Santa Clara County, where Turner, the defendant in that case, was sentenced to six months in county jail. Mitch, let me get you to pick it up and to introduce a couple of topics for us. Well, one of the things I want to get to next, Stephen, is that we you did a great job of outlining many of the things that the, the judge considered. And, and I think I agree with you 100%. I, I'm I'm not sure I'm at the level of outrage, but but if you asked me as an attorney with my 30, 40 years of experience, did I think that that sentencing was adequate for this crime, I, and obviously many other people, would say absolutely not. I don't agree with it at all. I don't see how a judge could have gotten through that list of things that you just went through in uh, aggravation, mitigation, and came up with this sentence. So, so I don't have any problem with that. What I am concerned about and would like to introduce for this segment, because then we can talk with Eliana about safe on, safety on campus. I'm very concerned about the idea that, that we then take to the ballot box and say this one judge over this one decision, which I just said, you and I completely disagree with, should be recalled. Uh, there's no evidence that this judge has been uh, uh, been uh, mis- there's any element of misconduct. Uh, the prosecutors don't suggest this is a good idea. His fellow judges don't discuss this is a good idea. He's got, what, 10, 15 years of a great work as a judge. He made a judgment call that we all disagree with, grossly disagree with. But this doesn't even come close to what I think is an appropriate use for the recall process. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, Mitch. And uh, Judge Persky was a 2003 Gray Davis appointee, and prior to that he served as a prosecutor and had as part of his major caseload sex offense cases. So he's no stranger to these type of cases. And I think you are right in the idea of uh, really focusing on the public outcry and whether it is actually the proper mechanism by which you actually try to remove a judicial officer. Because I think when you look at it objectively, the judge did exercise his discretion. He articulated the factors that he found warranted the sentence, although we disagree. He found that mitigation outweighed aggravation. Yeah, and, and I'm I'm a hundred percent on board with those who believe that this issue needs to be brought front and center. We're going to talk with Eliana about this issue needs to get more serious on campus. I personally believe that the universities should have a higher level of culpability of basically uh, turning a blind eye to both the issue of of sexual assault and rape on campus, as well as the abuse and misuse of alcohol. Glad you you referenced that, Mitch Eliana. Let's talk about that. The campus lifestyle and the idea of and let me just introduce it this way. I mean, is the conduct condoned in some way? Well, I think that we've seen times radically change. So I went to Swarthmore from Swarthmore College, a small liberal arts school outside of Philadelphia from 2009 to 2013. And actually it was the spring right as I was graduating in which we had a number of individuals on campus, women come forth and say that they had been assaulted, that the school administration had not taken their claims seriously, that their, you know, perpetrators still walked on campus, had had nothing affected. And ultimately this resulted in 
at least one Title IX lawsuit. And so I think, though, we've seen schools kind of scrambling to figure out, okay, how do we make campuses safer? But there's so many... There's just so many things to weigh at once. You know, my school had a policy in which alcohol was basically paid for by, it was what's called a wet campus. You know, there were school parties where you got in and the alcohol's just there and it's free and yeah. there's no police on campus. Um, and, you know, it just that was certainly sanctioned. To what extent that encourages behavior, you know, is a good question. But Things have gotten a lot tighter. I can tell you now you have to have a wristband to get into certain events. There's no more alcohol provided. There are groups and counseling, and there's actual kind of procedures to um, claim something to go through. But it's, there's a long way to go, it seems. Yeah. And Stephen, let me, ask, let me add a quick, uh, quick guest here. My daughter, Lisa Winnick, who's a, a sophomore at Cal Poly, has, I was just talking with her about what kind of things that campus has done. And they are they are very strict. And I, I'm going to ask her just for take a second here to talk about some of the changes they've had. Hi, Lisa. Hi, how are you guys doing? Great, today? how are you? Hey. I'm doing great. Good. So um, I go, I'm a sophomore. I just finished my sophomore year at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And they've taken a little bit of a different approach than um, Eliana's school. So they're very strict about it, and they have um, reached out to the Greek community and asked how they would like to handle it. And so the Greek community has proposed that, like, we take class, like, uh, a session with our safer representatives, which is like the sexual assault uh, club training on campus. And so everyone is trained to be a bystander intervention. Um, everyone is like aware of the conversation that needs to be had. If someone comes to you and says like, I've been sexually assaulted, like to listen and to like what resources we have, but not to like force them to resources. So there's a, there's a dedication to see something, say something kind of a approach or protocol and it seems like and I'll, I'll just say Swarthmore would be upset at me we have those things now too but it's been a process to to get there and in particular there are consent workshops and I think mm -hmm. that's especially key on campuses but it's always troubling to me when I think about you know uh, once alcohol is in the picture consent is no longer you know available to either yeah. person and that's no consent and you know can, can i take this opportunity to go legal on everybody because the issue yes. of consent is a very important issue to get out and in order to consent one must do so voluntarily all right Incredibly. so by law consent is the voluntary relinquishment of a known right you do so voluntarily if you are under the influence of alcohol and somebody tries to get your consent it is not lawfully obtained which goes back to the issue of where intoxication should be parked in the grand scheme of sentencing and once again i guess that's the hill i'm going to die on it should be a factor in aggravation not mitigation so there. <laughs> well, um, go ahead. So Lisa. on Cal Poly's campus, there's like a, it's really strict about alcohol use as well. And so everyone has to be registered to throw parties and stuff. So they should know who is obtaining the alcohol, who is obtaining the party and all that stuff. So that's a way that they're trying to regulate it all. But it's so hard in college. Yeah, Lisa, let me ask you this. Should evidence that the defendant, in this case Turner, that he was intoxicated... Should that be some kind of defense to him? 
personally, I don't think alcohol is an excuse or like it's his own actions that he chose to do. I think alcohol was a vehicle to like to give him the confidence in a way to do it. But I don't think alcohol should be an excuse. Like it was like like drunk thoughts or sober or sober drunk actions or sober thoughts in a way. And I think. I think that's right, Lisa. I'd agree with you. And I I would point to, actually, the victim in this case had a statement, which maybe I'll bring when we come back. hold, Hold that thought. When we come back, we'll pick back up on this idea of consent and the uh, mental state of the defendant and how it should have been interpreted by the courts. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law on the BizTalk Radio and over Voice America. We'll be right back after this short break. Applying to Monterey College of Law is not hard, and we have a financial plan and class schedule that is tailored to meet your needs. I'm Wendy LaRiviere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true without crippling you with debt on graduation day. I chose Monterey College of Law because I wanted to continue working during the day. I had children at home, and I wanted to be able to go to school at night where it wouldn't impact what my children needed from me. There really is not crippling debt that you face afterwards. Monterey College of Law has a payment plan which is manageable, and they work with you. The other huge benefit of Monterey College of Law is that the professors are judges and lawyers. By taking their classes, you really actually start networking. So I was very fortunate because I also ended up with a mentor. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000 or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. For decades, the students at Monterey College of Law have graduated and gone on to pass the bar and become successful attorneys. However, not everyone goes to Monterey College of Law to become an attorney. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. We also offer students our two-year Master of Legal Studies degree, which can enhance their chosen careers. I was working as a deputy coroner for San Mateo County as a death scene investigator, and I wanted a better idea of the legal issues that were involved in forensic investigations. Everything about Monterey College of Law was accommodating to the uh, course of study I was trying to find. I graduated from Monterey College of Law with no outstanding debt. I'm working as an investigator for the San Mateo County Private Defender's Office, performing indigent defense investigations. For more information, call us today at 582-4000. That's 582-4000. Or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. That's montereylaw.edu. If you are a small business owner, you're subject to many of the same laws and regulations that apply to large corporations. Where do you go for help? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. SBA.gov is the website published by the Small Business Administration. It provides a wealth of information for small business owners, including employment and labor law, intellectual property law, online business laws and regulations, environmental regulations, workplace safety, and foreign worker eligibility. Of course, SBA.gov is not a replacement for having your own business attorney, but it is a free resource that may help you realize when you need to consult an attorney. SBA.gov.
Have you thought about a law degree? Did you know you can attend an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo? And you can begin classes in May or in August. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of San Luis Obispo College of Law. San Luis Obispo College of Law is a branch of Monterey College of Law, an accredited law school established 44 years ago. At San Luis Obispo College of Law, we have convenient evening classes, Mondays through Thursdays from 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. We have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. We also have payment programs that allow you to make monthly payments or apply for private student loans. At San Luis Obispo College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. If you've been thinking about a law degree, find out now if San Luis Obispo College of Law is your law school. Attend one of our information sessions and get answers to your questions. Or call me, Wendy Law Revere, at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org. That's slolaw.org. It is one thing to argue with your friends at the bar, but have you ever wondered what it would be like to argue in front of the United States Supreme Court? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Oye.org, spelled O-Y-E-Z dot O-R-G, is a website published by the Free Law Project at Chicago Kent School of Law. You can go to Oye.org and listen to 60 years of actual oral arguments at the United States Supreme Court. Written summaries are provided for cases that go all the way back to 1789. OEA.org also provides biographical information on every United States Supreme Court justice and offers an online tour of the Supreme Court building. Go to OEA.org to see if you have what it takes to present a winning argument. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the Brock Turner sentencing out of Santa Clara County. And our in-studio guest today is Eliana Biscard-Church. She's returned to the studio after helping us when we just started out on our program. So we're happy to have Eliana. And we have Mitch Winnick from down south with, is Lisa still there? No, she she moved on. Oh, um, okay, back. so it was a cameo. Quick, it was a cameo. It was a cameo. All right, so her agent only her only agent only gave her six minutes. Your time is up. Okay, that was, lady. that was tough. Who's who's her agent? Oh my gosh. Okay, so so let's go back. I want to go back to campus environment, consent, and alcohol. All these ingredients and factors that are really important in this case, in this setting. So I asked Eliana before the idea of whether or not this conduct might be condoned on campuses. And of course, I wasn't expecting Eliana to say, sure, it, it is condoned. Of course, it's not. But do we look the other way? And one of the things that Eliana had mentioned during the break has to do with the judge's background and the fact that he may have a similar background uh, to Turner. And whether that factored in, and of course I'm speaking about the fact that the judge was a Stanford graduate, I think he was the captain of the lacrosse team, he may well be accustomed to uh, what uh, the reveling entails when you are an elite uh, member of a sports team. That factor, Mitch. Well, that, and, and let's not oversee the, overlook the question of whether race came into it. You know, you have a, a white athlete from an affluent family versus what some have raised the question of had this been 
uh, a black athlete from a poor side of town would it have been treated the same way and so you're you're framing that is right to what extent does a judge's prejudice and i i mean that prejudice not necessarily in the bad way but the judge's lifestyle life history come into play and as human nature of course that's going to come into play to some extent but i as much as i disagree with the outcome of what he had i it may have played some role in this. I don't think it rate comes to the level of of the type of misconduct that would uh, suggest that we should recall this judge. Yeah, and what I had shared with Eliana on the break was that there are mechanisms by which a judge can be disqualified from hearing a case. And of course, in this specific uh, instance involving this judge, we know that he has been disqualified in subsequent cases by the DA's office. And that's a lawful exercise of a challenge that any party, the DA or the defense attorney, can actually uh, raise. And the judge would uh, then uh, be disqualified from hearing a case. And then in rare instances, there are settings in which a judge might know the defendant and the judge may on his own volition actually disqualify him or herself. So do you think this no was... That, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say... No, no, so, oh, Mitch, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, there, uh, there's no real evidence that this judge has ever gone light on any other case in which there was sexual assault or rape. As you said, Stephen, he'd been a prosecutor in this area. There was never any evidence that he shied away from sentencing recommendations. I mean, generally, his career as a whole has been perceived as a very good judge. He just made a judgment call based on his read of this probation report of this one case that we happen to disagree with. True. Right. So, but do you think it was warranted? So you're saying he has a history of not being lenient, then why this case? What led him to, on this case, with a young man who might be Olympic bound, there was lots of talks about his future success and how this was going to really ruin, quote unquote, his future. Let's also remember that the victim's life is altered forever. But yeah, what was it warranted? I mean, you say you disagree, but... Yeah, let's, let's take that opportunity, uh, Mitch, to talk about the purpose of punishment. I think that's something that's important to discuss. What do we have for purposes from a policy standpoint of punishment? We have retribution as one factor, right? We have, and obviously, from that standpoint, this, this judgment doesn't even come close to meeting what our social standard right now would be from the out, outcry. It, it failed at that, at that level. Right. So when we look at the, cool. isu- the issue of whether the punishment meets the crime, what are we looking at? What factors should we be looking at? We look at the nature of the offense, the totality of the circumstances surrounding the offense, and then we look at the defendant or the suspect side of the equation to see what factors exist out there that could be packaged or argued as mitigating factors. And it's, and, and this is terrible to say, but we all bear the, the responsibility for it. We get the best justice system we pay for, and that includes the incarceration system that we have. And let no one forget that in California, we are impacted in our jails and prisons no differently than we are impacted in our universities. And that these judges are pressured in knowing that there are only so many slots in jail you can give and they have to make and weigh some balance of, is jail the best use of our public resources to protect us from this defendant or are there other options that might meet the same regard? And we don't like to think about that, but I think it's something we all need to be cognizant of. 
Well, and if we're going to call them correctional facilities, I think it also begs the question of what correcting, what rehabilitating is, is being done. And especially if we talk about, you know, someone who has committed a violent act or sexual act, how, how does a prison sentence necessarily prepare that person to come back into society and not reoffend? You know, what are the, what are the ways in which, you know, I'm curious to know, can this judge, could he have certain sexual education, anger management, whatever courses, is, is a jail cell the right place? Okay, so now you're making me think about, and I appreciate you introducing that, uh, but now you're making me think about the message. What is the message? What message has now been communicated to other college athletes right now? I can't help but wonder that. Sure. And, and to me, that's, that it, it concerns me greatly. And again, I'm going to go back to the intoxication issue mm-hmm. because the judge is on record as identifying intoxication on the part of the defendant as a factor in mitigation. And I think that's grossly, grossly misplaced. And Turner's I statement and his father's statement Wait, completely can I have blame Mitch, Mitch, can, you, can I get read back on that? What did you say? <laughs> I completely agree with you. Okay, all right. Let me add this, though, because I know I'm going to get people that, that are going to email us on this on a legal issue right. because it, it, here's, a, here's a point that needs to be made. The reason intoxication might factor in and be parked in mitigation actually relates to the nature of the charges because the charges were assault with intent to commit which does actually lead to a discussion that the mental state might have actually required some form of specific intent. I'm not saying that's an accurate portrayal, but it may well be the way Judge Persky interpreted that. You know, the other that would have only gone to one of the three charges, right? Because there's only one yes. of the three was yes. charged. The other two, that doesn't come into play. Yes, that's true. And then the other factor that I think has been a little bit uh, underreported is the fact that this actually did go to a jury trial. And jurors sat in judgment over this. There was one juror that I think was compelled to write to the judge about the sentence. Yeah, and their disagreement with the sentence. Absolutely. Uh, as well, yes. So I think we all agree on that. And to the point that Eliano and you are making is what is the message? Uh, I would hope that the message is loud and clear, that the, the treatment that we talked about, the looking the other way for athletes or students on campus – the lax attitude about sexual assault and rape, you know, is not acceptable, is not going to be tolerated. Uh, unfortunately, I think, you know, we may see some questions raised about liability. Uh, why shouldn't a campus that knows a certain activity is going on, that increases a risk, provides physical space, uh, and does nothing more than, you know, Lisa talked about some of the things Cal Poly is doing the question is, has Stanford done enough? The question could be, has any campus done enough? They've got minors on campus. Uh, there, there weren't two minors in this case, but they do have minors on campus. Should this university have greater liability? Personally, I would weigh in and say yes. Okay, great topic. And I know we're going to come into the break soon on it, but let's expand upon that a little bit. Uh, when we look at the responsibility of the school, I mean, do they foster and promote some of this kind of conduct, Eliana? What do you think? Oh, I think, I think that's hard to say. I mean, ultimately, a campus is a place of learning. You do have young people. You know, you cannot have, it's not fascist. You cannot control every 
element. I also think that, you know, students leave school and they go to a bar when they're 22. You know, they, this, we can't completely think that the school is necessarily liable for every moment. I think what's most important, and there has been improvement, is that universities, colleges understand the you know, necessary precautions, the ways to educate students that they play those roles. Um, and that when there has been an assault or an issue, there is a process for the victim to you know, grieve through yeah. and to have attention made to it promptly. That's true. I, I can tell you that the campus or the school is liable under circumstances where there's a lot of notice. And we'll return to that topic when we come back. And Mitch, also the topic of how the victim got to that party. I know that's a topic you wanted to talk about. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law on the BizTalk Radio Network and over Voice America. We are talking about the Brock Turner sentencing out of Santa Clara County. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this short break. Making a change in career is a serious decision that affects both you and your family. You have many questions that need to be answered before you can make a commitment. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true. And it's affordable. But don't take it from me. Hear what recent graduate Dan Cullum says. Before I was entering law school, I was an airline pilot. After I retired, I decided that I would go to law school. Monterey College of Law was the avenue to to fulfill that desire. I loved Monterey College of Law. It was small classes. The professors were very helpful, personal. You could talk to them. Tuition is not exorbitant at Monterey College of Law, which is the opposite of the way it is at other places. It's affordable. They have a a program at Monterey College of Law that lets you pay as you go, so it's financially possible. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000 or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. Long before Woody's cruised Beach Street, kids and teens have needed to know that they are important and that they belong. Since 1969, the Boys and Girls Club of Santa Cruz has provided a place where potential is released and great futures are forged. Help celebrate our 45th anniversary by emailing your club memories and pictures to celebrate 45 years at boysandgirlsclub.info or call 423-3138, extension 23. We are also excited to announce that Monterey College of Law is providing one full tuition law school scholarship each year to a former Boys and Girls Club participant. Contact Executive Director Bob Langseth at 423-3138, extension 21, or email bob at boysandgirlsclub.info to learn more about this exciting opportunity. Consumer scams, fraud, deceptive business practices. Where do you go for protection? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. FTC.gov is the website published by the Federal Trade Commission. As the nation's consumer protection agency, the FTC wants to know about businesses that cheat people out of money. If you've been the victim of consumer fraud, you should file a complaint at FTC.gov. 
although the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection will not help you recover your individual damages, your complaint may initiate an investigation that results in companies or individuals being sued by the government for fraud, deceptive practices, or unfair business practices. If you want more information about how to protect yourself as a consumer, go to the Bureau of Consumer Protection at ftc.gov. Are you ready to start law school now? If you've just graduated from college or are thinking of changing your career, now is the time to take that first step. Slow College of Law is accepting applications for May 2016. San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School founded 43 years ago. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. Their highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evenings and the campus is conveniently located in downtown San Luis Obispo. Let the professionals show you how to make becoming a lawyer a reality. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an information session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy Law Revere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We've been talking about the Brock Turner case and the sentencing out of Santa Clara County and campus life and what kind of things can happen on campuses to perhaps maybe change the culture or to prevent this kind of thing from ever happening again. And Mitch, you know, Eliana had a good idea, and that was to maybe talk about some of the positives that might come out of this, which is kind of a, a tall order, but it's actually something we can do. And one way to do it is to raise the issue of the good Samaritans that gave chase and jumped in to intervene in this case. Well, that's exactly right. You had two young men, two Stanford uh, students who, who saw the assault taking place, stepped in. Uh, not only one of uh, my understanding of the reading of the facts of the case, one of them stayed to see if they could assist the, the woman. The other were chased and tackled. Uh, Mr. Turner held him down. The other came over to help hold him down. They called the police, and you know that that's the highest order of of you know, public good Samaritan. I was going to say that in in the the positive of the dialogue is is where I would go with this and say uh, let me let me take a slightly different turn. The argument is that Mr. Turner got off 
lightly. But in fact, I would hope the dialogue in the locker rooms and on teams and by coaches and by uh, college presidents is, you know, here's, here's a young man that, yes, he's going to spend three months in jail. He will register as a sex offender for the rest of his life. His Olympic uh, dreams of being a swimmer are over. He's been disavowed by USA Swimming. He can't go to any other college and competitively swim ever again. I mean, that's not going to prison, but his behavior ended up in a life that is over for him, uh, not in prison, but his life is over. And I would hope that the positive from that is uh, you don't have to put someone in prison necessarily to have the positive teaching point that this behavior is not okay and it will ruin the rest of your life as well as that of the survivors. And, and there, so, is a, there is a... Um a Stanford professor, it's uh, Professor Dauber, who has actually undertaken efforts to really uh, emphasize education on this point and to really make it a focal point. Uh, and it, it'll be interesting to see what happens in terms of the education and what all colleges do as a result of this. Yeah, and in fact, that, that same professor is teaching a course, I think in the fall of next year, about sexual assault and the law. And so these are little, you know, little ways that we see national discussion occurring. And I also think it would be important to point to the fact that this young woman's statement to the court and to Brock Turner actually went viral. And that it was read aloud by, I forget, a, a news anchor woman um, read the entire like 12,000 word statement on air to the American public. So, you know, I remember, I think in, earlier, you know, maybe 2012, there was a woman at Harvard who wrote an open letter very similar to her attacker and to the administration in the Harvard Crimson. And that did not get nearly the same kind of attention that this has. And, you know, there, there is momentum, there's discussion. I think attitudes are changing. Um, so th those are all positive things. And this woman's letter at the end is a, is a call to, to help other women and to work with them. And that's, that's empowering. So to see this woman, standing up for herself eloquently and saying that it's not okay, that society needs to change is is heartening and inspiring. Yeah, I think that's right. And Mitch, and I, I was going to add to that. Let's talk about there's some other not so little things. If we shift to Baylor University, we just saw the university right. president, the coach, and the athletic director all dismissed from that university for the the really the non-action, or let's hope... You know, they haven't proven the bad action, but of knowing this type of completely unacceptable behavior was going on, they just didn't respond. They didn't take it seriously. And there's some allegations they may have known and covered it up. And so now you have the three most senior people on that side of the administration, a president, an athletic director, and a head football coach, dismissed from their jobs because of this type of an incident. Yeah, I think that's a very good point, Mitch. And I'd be really interested in seeing what happens with student athletes and specifically whether or not the student athletes are given you know, more warnings, more education on what is and what is not uh, to be tolerated. And Mitch, you had mentioned an issue of related to, to the victim's connection to the party. Did you want to expand on that? How she? Well, I want to do that with great, with great caution because, you know, this, this woman, as Eliana said, has been very articulate and has raised the dialogue very well. And, and I'm, I admire that, as, as Lisa pointed out, you know, she should be thought of as a survivor, not a victim, and I fully agree with that. What I would hope 
is that part of this dialogue, we have a broader discussion of the student behavior issue. Uh, you know, students over drinking, students drinking to the point of blacking out, it puts them in risk of all kinds of things. It shouldn't put them in risk and doesn't excuse criminal behavior at all. But had that person stepped out off the sidewalk and been hit by a car or fallen and struck their head with a concussion. I mean, there's almost nothing good that was going to happen to a student after they get to the point of blacking out from alcohol drinking. And I think there's a there's discussion of that in this case on both sides, uh, friends who left her stranded. I mean, there's bad behavior on the parents' side. Yeah. There's bad behavior on the classmates, on the friends. I mean, none of that at all all goes to the question of there was a crime and it should be punished but i would hope we can use that to to open that dialogue a little broader as well yeah i appreciate your sharing that and it, and the fact that you are delivering it in a cautionary fashion and by no means suggesting of course that the victim was at fault but it is, it is a good point you make to look at the big picture the grand picture yeah and i think absolutely those conversations need to have i think though it, not to problematized too much but some of the arguments for having campuses that actually at least you know allow kind of parties with alcohol or halls or dorms with alcohol is that that's kind of a place where students learn actually and that students who are on campus and maybe drink over drink their friends are worried about them can actually take them to the student center can take them to the hospital and they don't have to worry necessarily about a record and in cases where that is not the protocol students often will leave a friend stranded and that person can die from over drinking and all these these things where it's a, it's very complicated how we think about yeah i don't i don't know I, I get very alarmed thinking about the role of alcohol on campus but i i don't think it's going to change so how do we change instead people's attitudes and their behavior yep that's true well eliana thanks for joining thank us you. And, and mitch please thank lisa i will indeed so, Stephen, is, is there time for our wrap-up? It's a wrap. <laughs> I'll, I'll turn it well, to you. You get the honors. Well, thank you, Stephen. Thanks, Eliana. Thank you, Lisa, for joining us. A reminder to everyone that you can hear an archive of today's show at wagnerandwinnick.com, at voiceamerica.com, and at biztalkradio.com. Until next week, as we always remind you, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. is a good idea. Each week, Wagner and Winnick on the Law helps you sort out the legal issues and questions in a forum with judges, lawyers, and policy experts answering your questions and discussing your personal rights within the legal system. Law School Dean Mitchell Winnick, along with law professor Stephen Wagner, will discuss the sometimes ever-changing laws and policies to keep you in the know. Listen every Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Business. If you don't know the law, know a lawyer. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 